So welcome to the next gen cast. Somehow we're on episode eight already. Thank you so much if you've been listening so far and sending us your comments and your tweets. They've been hugely appreciated and really glad to know you're enjoying it. So this is episode eight and probably someone that's quite familiar to you if you've been part of Next Gen. Professor Nick Harding is a GP in Birmingham. He was chair of Sandman and West Birmingham CCG and he was also founding partner of the Modality Partnership which brings together over 50 practices. He's had some national roles as well, including senior clinical advisor to NH England. Nick joined Operate Health last year as their chief medical officer and they provide primary care, mental health and community services to patients across the country. And he's going to tell us a bit more about that later. And if all that wasn't enough, he somehow also found the time to run some amazing healthcare projects in Malawi and write a book about how to play the guitar. And that's a bit of an intimidating biography. But if you're listening to this and you've been part of Next Gen, you'll almost certainly have heard Nick speak at one of our programmes because he has spoken at most of them. So you'll know just how humble he really is and how much he loves to share his learning. I was in the privileged position of being on the receiving end of this when I first reached out to him just over three years ago for some advice about starting Next Gen. And he not only gave me a bit of self-belief that I could do it, but he's since become a, a regular speaker, a mentor, a friend and a supporter of Next Gen. So enough from me. Here's episode eight and Professor Nick Harding. Nick, as ever, it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. So some people will know this who've been on the programme because I tell this story at every event, but I borrowed lots of brilliance for Next Gen from a programme that you were running at the time. And you backed me when I went to you and you also just followed us on this crazy tour bus around the country. So we definitely wouldn't be where we are without you. Thanks, Nish. It's been a real, real privilege. I mean, what, uh, you know, there are, there are many things that I've been privileged to be part of, but actually something that can make us think differently, make us feel differently, make us behave differently in our leadership that's helpful um, from so many different people that have input is just, just an amazing thing, really. You know, every time I get to talk, it's my utter privilege. So thank you. So Nick, the usual next-gen thing to do, and what we've done in all the podcasts so far, is sit people down and ask people about their leadership journey and their lessons. You know that because you've done more than 40 programmes across the country and you've probably spoken to, I don't know, over a thousand next-gen participants already. So as I said to you in advance of this, I think we should do something a bit different. Now, for me, one of the most interesting parts of the Next Gen Evening is the Q&A that comes after the interview, so that more unprepared bit. And it's usually people asking your advice on you know, what they should be doing in terms of leadership roles or asking about what's going on in the world of primary care. And you always come out with something that makes me stop and think. As I said to you, I think we should do a bit of that for this podcast because I'd love to hear your thoughts on some things. So it's not going to be your usual stuff. Um, what did you think when I asked you that? It kind of interesting. It made me reflect. You know, I've um, I've, um, I've, I've I taught myself to play the guitar and was in a band for for several years. It's interesting when you do gigs in a band that you want to give your best. You want to do the best songs that you can do. And usually, all my songs were covers because we haven't written any great songs. So, um, but you want the best songs that people can really you know interact with. That it's going to go down well. It's going to be a great gig. And often there's a temptation for anybody that's doing a podcast or talking to do your best stories so that people really 
you know, you get great feedback and everyone's happy. And when I reflected on this, I thought actually there's some things which are less talked about that it would be really good to talk about rather than doing the really, you know, fun things, the great, you know, the great hits that everyone sings along to, maybe to talk about some of the things which are maybe a bit harder. Okay, I'm intrigued to know what this difficult stuff is, but I'll start with what I've asked everyone else, um, which is, you know, how have you been over the last few months? What has it been like leading through COVID times? Yeah, it's been, I mean, anyone that says it's not been tough is, is, uh, has not, has not been leading during COVID times in reality. So, so I would say it's been, it's been, it's been tough, uh, to some extent enjoyable. Um, and, you know, sometimes leadership's the, the biggest privilege in the world because when you get it right and you can help, it just feels like, it feels so, so good. However, you know, 2020 has been, you know, it's such a crazy year with, all that's gone on with with covid then um just the realization that we are, just are not treating people um based on the color of their skin the way we should be um some of the stuff that's going on there and so um, i think what's happened and someone described it as a just a disruption in our perceived journey in our safety what we thought was going to happen what we thought was going to be right but none of those things have happened um, they say that crisis is one of the things that reveals some deep truths about people. And I've, I've found some deep truths about myself, which I didn't know were there before, really. One of my daughters came home and stayed with us during uh, sort of the, the more uh, restricted bits of lockdown. And I ended up taking her back home in London. And then I was driving back. And in my, in my sort of journaling, I've called this the Tower Bridge Affair because as I drove across Tower Bridge, I suddenly felt so emotional. I had felt tears were welling up inside me. And, you know, my, my, I've dropped my daughter off quite a few times. So it wasn't like that was the problem. Um, although we were going to miss her because we had been at home. Um, and it was interesting because I'm reflecting with, with, with people around me. There's something about the loss of the pandemic, the lament of, um, the race questions that people are beginning to rightly ask again. Um, and all that's gone on that I realised there was quite a lot of pain there. And so, and the interesting thing is when you get an emotion like that, you can say, well, where did that, you, the question you ask is, well, where did that come from? What's that about? Um, and um, I came across this concept of, you know, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and um, we know what that is, uh, that is, and we know what that feels like as clinicians, but actually um, this concept of post-traumatic growth, carrying the weight of, um, you know, all of us have done just, just by being clinicians through that's gone on and just um, allowing that to happen. You'd be glad to know I didn't crash the car. I managed to um, pull the car over to somewhere safely. And, you know, it wasn't like I was a gibbering wreck, but I just felt that strong emotion, which you wouldn't, uh, you know, is a slightly less usual thing for me to feel. So um, so you asked me what it's felt like. It's felt like, um, it's felt like someone's taken, you know, everyone's life in 2020, which was, you know, the nature sketch and shaking it all up. So it's all clear again. You've got to start with the dials. And yeah, so we've had the refresh of the etcher sketch is what I've called it. And just a bunch of emotions, which uh, I guess we're not used to. Um, so it's felt like all those things. And it's been interesting trying to learn from that. Mm, I, I think I really like that etcher sketch analogy. That is definitely true for me how have you processed that or, or coped with that day to day i found just just chatting to people just chatting with uh, um people that are older and wiser than me usually um i, I was 
pointed in the direction of something called the window of tolerance, um, which I found really helpful. Um, Realising that there are um, times when you're kind of hyper aroused, you're driven by your sympathetic nervous system, adrenaline based, you know, doing stuff, lists, bang, 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 getting it all out. Um, so there's a, a there's a hyper arousal state, and that that's okay. You can live in that. You can do that. There's also the hypo arousal state, and that's interesting as well because I recognise that in myself, and you know, I think as clinicians, as people that are in the caring industry, we um, you know we quite often come home from work and feel like we make quite a lot of decisions. We feel like we are we've got a right to rest, we've got a right to watch rubbish TV, then just switch off. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's good to have that state, but then it can produce just a, a just a slight negativity around it. In the uh, window of tolerance model, there's a kind of a zone of you know, the middle bit where you are able to you know recognise, receive, process, um, and integrate um, your day to day life well. And so it's been really helpful for me to realise that, that we've been living in a really a hyper-arousal state with all that's going on with coronavirus. Understanding there are times when I've been in the hyper-arousal state, but actually trying to make sure that I'm in the, um, you know, the correct arousal, um, understanding that has been really, really helpful for me. Yeah, getting time just to think um, and reflect and understand my emotions and really realise that I really wasn't very good at it. I think it's interesting because people in COVID at the beginning were talking about it like it was something that, you know, lockdown particularly um, was going to be a, you know, a competition. Some people are going to lose weight. Some people are going to take on a new skill. Some people are going to read, you know, an amazing number of books. But actually just getting through has been acceptable. Um, just getting through and, um, you know, that's absolutely fine, knowing who I am in that process. So. Yeah, that's kind of been the internal stuff that's going on in me. Um, and um, I, I just think it's, I think it's been going on in a lot of people. That's a big, long answer, Nish. But it's helpful because it's honest, Nick, and especially just around how hard it's been to process things and some of the emotions, I guess, that the crisis has brought up. I think that's true for a lot of people and we don't often talk about it. Can I ask you a bit about a couple of things that you just mentioned there? Yeah, sure. You talked there about this window of tolerance model, which I've not heard before, and that's interesting. I guess sometimes when things slow down and you end up thinking about the future, I find myself flitting between the hyper and the hypo arousal because I just either feel a bit anxious and a bit worried about it or a bit despairing and everything slows down and I can't get into that middle zone. How do you feel when you think about the future? So I think, um, I, you know, I've told stories previously about my grandfather living through flu pandemics. My father was at RMO in one of the hospitals in 69 when they had that pandemic. So getting perspectives is really, really important. And I think that, you know, the truth is the world is safer now than it ever has been. We kind of forget that. Um, it feels less safe because we have... We've got more access to information we ever have. And so finding ways to, again, recalibrate, to realise actually, you know, the world is safer than it ever has been. Our life is safer than it ever has been. Yes, you know, coronavirus uh, is is an issue. Um, and that's not to um, take away from the awful number of deaths that have happened. 
just un- taking a step back and be able to say the new normal will come, whatever that is. And that's a phrase which I kind of don't like, but it, it describes where we will be. I think, and also realise that, yeah, like I've talked already, my response will be certain things, helping me understand that that's okay. I guess, we, you know, I've talked again about the, um, the Stockdale paradox, you know, the guy that, um, you know, was locked up in a, one of the world wars. Um, and he said, you know, you have to do two things. You have to confront the brutal facts, but retain hope. Um, and so, you know, the brutal facts are that, uh, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic that we in our generation haven't known, but my father, who's still alive, has known. And so getting time to talk to him about what he remembers of it, and then also that helps him retain hope. So I think it is tough, um, you know, and it is tough for people, and in no way would I belittle any of that for anybody, but I would say that perspective is the thing which helps more than anything you talked there about hope you, you probably know that quote i think it's napoleon that said a leader is a dealer in hope so bringing hope to people is such a big part of leadership how have you found the job of leadership behind a computer screen so i think um what do i think i think it's i mean it's been so much harder hasn't it there's no point pretending that it hasn't um I was intrigued recently, I was listening to a psychotherapist talk who said that um, one of the things that Zoom's done has caused us to realise that it's it's harder to share emotions where we are not used to expressing those through video formats. Or actually, we've all learned to express emotions through phones because we've kind of previously done that. Um, but we haven't um, had to do that previously on, on on video and so there are times where it's easier to do emotions not by doing it on video just by doing calls um, and he said it's a bit like when you when you really want to smell something and get the aroma of something you shut your eyes you shut your other senses off and you you know like imagine a rose you know when you go and smell it you you stick your nose in it and you take a big whiff in but then you shut your eyes because you don't want to see you don't want that sense to be there and so um and obviously the people that are you know, experts at it then become better at opening their eyes and, and doing it just because they become used to it. And so I think we've had to learn how to do some of the emotions uh, on Zoom in a way that's that we're not used to. Um, it isn't as easy as when you're in the room, you know, um, silence on Zoom is much harder than uh, silence in real life um, because you just, <laughs> you don't know whether the computer's frozen or, or why silence is happening. So that's that's been interesting. Um, it's been a you know again it's been a an, an interesting learning experience, but also yeah also tough. I mean, I think you know sometimes again I was listening to a podcast where someone was saying that um, some of the best businesses, some of the best leadership people have been people who've learned to express vulnerability uh, in this time. And, you know, it's that phrase, isn't it, that people always connect with us over our vulnerabilities. They don't connect with us over our strengths. You know, if you see somebody that's brilliant at something, you can admire that. You don't really connect with them. And so being vulnerable is, I think, has been helpful. And certainly I have the privilege of working for, you know, in a group of executive colleagues who we've been able to say, you know, this this stuff isn't working. It's not quite right. So expressing our own vulnerability and that allows us to connect better. Finding ways, you know, not expressing, you know, your deepest desires to everybody because that's that's not what that's not what it's about. But just learning new ways to express vulnerabilities so that people can connect. 
I think that's been some of the challenge. Hmm, I never thought of that actually. And I suppose it's a bit like working out how to express your emotions on WhatsApp when you've transitioned from a phone call to WhatsApp. And now we need to work out the equivalent of doing that on a video call. So Nick, you also mentioned there about talking to colleagues on Zoom and it made me think that as well as coping with the pandemic, you've also had to juggle transition into a new role. Can we change tack a bit and talk about that? So what is it that you're doing at the moment? So I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Operos Health. Um, so we deliver healthcare, NHS care for in GP practices, in community-based outpatients and psychological services. Um, also the medical force that they're underneath us, they, they report to me. Um, and so I'm still a GP a day a week, but then, yeah, just helping manage the workforce. And do you mind just chatting a bit about why you decided to change role? Because I think that's something that um, people in next gen often ask about. How do you know when is the right time to take on an opportunity? And also you've moved from being chair of a CCG and working at NH England to now being CMO at Operos Health. So I guess what I'm wondering is how did you know that was the right move to make at that time? Um, yeah, so I'd felt some time before that um, the the way I was working, uh, it, it was it was going to change. You know, if you're in the health service for, for um, any season, then things get rearranged. And that's part of the privilege of working in the system that we work in. And so it felt like I knew my role was going to change. Um, and um, I guess... One of the things that I've realised is that, you know, you, um, you know, Chesney Hawks was a one hit wonder, um, as as is quoted. I feel slightly bad because I don't really know Chesney Hawks. I could be slagging him off. But um, (laughs) um, and but being able to do some of the things that I was doing in a different environment, but still involved in healthcare felt felt like an interesting way to learn more. Again, learn more about myself, but learn about how I could change things and actually one of the things I've noticed is that being able to say I can express my leadership in one sphere and then say what does it look like in a you know actually I'm still in healthcare so it's not like I've gone from doing something that's completely different but just learning what my expression of leadership is in that um, in a different sphere has been again very interesting Um, like all these things you learn more about yourself than you do about about anything else and um, it's helped me really realise what the things that I am good at and things, again, that I'm not so good at, um, just because you have a different perspective, a different paradigm. Um, again, to quote an, another friend, um, you know, the NHS is such a big thing, delivering healthcare is such a big thing that sometimes, you know, you have to stand on one side of it where you've been working and you think you know quite a lot and then walk around the other side and go and see what it's like from that side. So being able to do that has been, been a great privilege. So Nick, you said that you're doing a day a week as a GP um, and I'd really like you to chat about that. So how do you know what the right balance is to have between leadership work and clinical work? I think particularly when you're at the start of your career, like most next-gen GPs are. So I think, okay, it's hard. It's really hard. You've got to decide what's right for you. And there are some people that would say that a day a week's not enough. Some people would say, um, you know, and actually... You know, I had uh, for my training was different to how, say, your training is now, Nish. Um, you know, I think when I did the, if I do the maths about it, if you do a four-hour surgery um, six times a week, which is probably what a lot of trainees are doing now, maybe more. Um, you know, I was doing two four-hour surgeries eight or nine times a week plus out of hours. 
um, you, you just rack up different amounts of time and that's not a wrong, not right or wrong it just is what it is so you know if you do a four-hour surgery six times a week 42 weeks a year by the time you've taken on study leave annual leave and everything else then that's about a thousand hours consulting per year um, and it's interesting isn't it because Gladwell's book in 2008 outliers he said to become a master at anything you need to do sort of 10,000 hours um, and so I think there's a an interesting expectation that we shouldn't really be expecting people to be masters of general practice until they've got some of those skills. Now, I, I don't know whether Gladwell's analogy works for you know, general practice. He, I think he studied it in the um, in songwriters, in violin compo- violinists and several other people. Um, so I think um, once you get, once you um once you develop the time and you've done it, it becomes easier to change how much time you're doing in general practice and doing other things as well. So I don't think the hours are hard and fast, but I think they're sort of symbolic of the, of the work that you need to do. I think most leadership is done in the general practice consultation or in the, you know, it's just in your daily life as a GP. And, and so finding the leadership opportunities in that is just as important as the, you know, the, the job, the job outside of that um so i think it's it's hard in some ways you you don't get as many hours training as as previously happened and you know you could argue that's a good thing which i'd, I'd completely understand as well but it does have an effect that you um you just have to you just have to think differently about when you um, master the craft of being a gp um, and if you think that differently then you have to work out well how many how many sessions do you need to do before you can settle down to feel confident. I mean, I think you also learn things incrementally. Um, you know, the other thing that's happened to me is I decided to try and lose a bit of weight. And um, that's always an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you realise that everyone around you says you'll feel better when you lose weight. And the truth is, you feel better when you eat pizza. Um, <laughs> you don't feel better when you lose weight. Um, and anybody that tells you you feel better losing weight is just telling you a bunch of porcupines, actually. But it happens incrementally. It's not, you know, it's not like you can just say, right, I'm going to eat nothing today and therefore I've lost a load of weight tomorrow. It's an incremental thing. You have to keep doing it. And again, I think that's a picture of how you begin to master something and get good at being a, a clinician. But just understanding that and accepting that it is that and therefore, you know, your leadership journey has to be, there has to be a time where you get you know, just the, the seasons of seeing patients is, is is more than than others now now i've been a gp a bit longer some of the guys the next generation gp and therefore probably it's easier for me to do a bit less clinical work i think it's a really important question and it's probably not a question that people can say well i'm you know this the right number of rules and you know you must do this many hours yeah it's tricky isn't it because it's i guess it's like you said it is very personal but there's that balance between people are diversifying and taking on other roles to try and avoid burning out and yet you you kind of know that you just need to put some face time in I think at the start of your career and then I guess lots of people in next gen are finding opportunities to do more stuff than maybe people used to with PCNs and so on it feels like slowly the game is opening up a bit yeah that's good you know it really needs to be that um it's, it's again I think it's shifting our view our paradigm of you know you do your training you come out actually you know you 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 need to you need you need to think differently about what what your career looks like 
but actually getting the variety is really, really important and available too. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? When you start to think about the patients that you follow up, the ones that you're worried about, um, and actually there are some patients I follow up because, um, I, you know, just I'm, I'm worried about them. So they're the people I write on the list that I think oh, I must ring them the next day. And actually, I think that's a marker of how confident you feel in your um, clinical decision-making as a GP. You know, when I was a registrar, that was a long list. And that's right. It should be a long list because you're going, well, A, you want to know what's happening to them, B, there's some learning associated with that. But then I guess with your confidence in decision-making clinically, you know, that list probably gets shorter. Mm, I think even though you kind of know that you need to be focusing on your clinical work early in your career when that list is long, when opportunities do arise, there is a bit of FOMO around. and You know, you just don't want to miss out, especially if you see other people doing them really early on in their careers. What, what FOMO does is interesting, is that, you know, it, it just takes away our peace. One of the really interesting things about COVID, wasn't it, is that it really removed FOMO out of everything for us because mm. <laughs> nobody was doing anything else. And actually, it was really interesting because... Uh, there wasn't a better party that you could go to because there were no parties. Whatever you were doing in the evening, whichever restaurant you went to um, was the best that could be there because it was in your house. You weren't allowed to go to a restaurant. So, you know, people would put on social media no pictures of food in a restaurant that you weren't at. And it made me think quite a lot about um, about FOMO and how it, it really, it can really constrain us because, you know, the, the truth is, you know, the, the, the roles that I've had the privilege of doing, I could usually name somebody who was better at the job that I was doing, who was more gifted and often more qualified than the role that I was in. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's always been people that are, you know, and there are, there are still, um, you know, gosh, there are people that are better. You know, I, there's a bit of me that feels slightly like, um, you know, there are a whole bunch of people that could do this podcast that are just just so much better than I am. But actually, I've got my story um, and I can tell my story and nobody else can tell my story um, and nobody else can tell Nish's story apart from Nish. The reality is if I talk about the stuff that's real to me, then that's that that's me. Um, what what FOMO does, it, it just takes away our peace. That's the trouble with it. Us. And... Um, being content in the job that you're doing, not in a way that you don't want to change things or you don't want to grow, is, is, is I think, a, a learned skill, learning how you can do that. Um, but then also realising, you know, there's that great phrase, isn't there, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, you know, in your organisation, you can have all the strategy in the world, but if you haven't got the culture that's right, then it just destroys it all. But also the truth is that comparison um, will eat your joy for breakfast. So that when you wake up in the morning and you're trying to compare yourself to somebody else, then if you're making that comparison, you just you just lose the, the joy of the job if you're not careful. And so there's those two things, aren't there? And I think that they may be even two sides of a coin. That there's the somebody being better than you are. That that's always true. But on the other side of the coin, there's the fear of you should be doing something else. And those two things make a pretty you, you can lose the joy in the job, can't you? And actually, I still love the moment where I work in my strengths, where I do what I do really well, and actually where I get acknowledged for it um, in, a, in a way that's positive, not in a way that's sort of sycophantic. You know, me realising that I, I did what I did, I contributed what I can contribute, and actually that's what will give me joy, rather than the 
through missing out on something else. Um, it's absolutely true that comparison eats joy for breakfast. That's really true. I love that. Comparison eats joy for breakfast. My guess, Nick, the other thing with, with FOMO is you kind of you take an opportunity and you're in it for a while and before long you've already started to look around again and see see what else is out there and what other people are doing um, and it's really difficult to kind of then be present and focused in what in the role that you're doing does that make sense yeah I think in any role you're in there's always a bit of looking you know the grass is always greener on the other side um, and someone famously said yeah that's because it's astroturf <laughs> um, so, but but the grass is always you know you always think about the grass being greener on the side. The truth is, all jobs have got some difficult stuff in. No matter what you're doing, no matter where you are. Um, I guess one of the interesting things, um, yeah, when I first became chair of the CCG, I was asking some people that were sort of regional leaders their their leadership tips, and um, there was one guy who said to me, you know, the White Cliffs of Dover weren't built in a day. And actually, so something that's there, that's strong, that's been there over many, many years, didn't happen like that. And so when we were, you know, at the beginning of CCGs, there was an element of saying you can't set up a CCG in a year and expect it to be something that's going to be, you know, just the best ever. It just takes time and you just keep having to build. So so nature teaches us, doesn't it, really, that, um, you know, big things, when you think about you know, massive valleys or massive mountains, they, they, they sort of take time perseverance really counts you know i think sometimes you have to think about that particularly in fomo when you coming back to what we talked about previously is that you have to say actually there's the tantalizing thing of the grass being greener on either side but the reality is to make your grass green you've got to water it you've got to tend it you've got to spend time doing it you know i think the other thing that's interesting about leaders who persevered they've all dealt with some pretty tough stuff um you know, they've all, all the leaders that I would say probably that we have great respect for, they're the people who've learned through the hard times and kind of the good times in a way. And um, and when you get them talking, and you do see this on Next Gen, people start to talk about the hard stuff that they lived through, what what the lessons they learned, and how they then apply those lessons to, to, to where they are now. And that gives them grounding that's, you know, that's that's really important now. You know, I wouldn't wish hard times on anybody, let's be clear, because nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to live through those times. But um, but you do learn stuff in them that's harder to learn in other seasons. Do you mean that in, when you see particularly leaders that have been around for a while, leaders that you admire, there's a, a backbone of strength that maybe has come from just sticking it out and persevering and being there for a while? Yeah, you can't create great leadership skills. You can't create great organisations unless you've been there for some time. I mean, you know, they say that, you know, when you take on a new job that you, you can't, you know, you want to go in and change everything, but you can't. It takes time. There's a season you can take, um, you know, often a year or longer before you can start moulding a role in the way that you want it to be, um, how you want it to work. So it just takes time. So Nick, this conversation has just kind of gone all over the place, but I have found it really helpful because I feel like you've been really honest. I know we've we've talked quite a lot about some of the the difficult problems that Corona's presented and also some of the leadership dilemmas people might be facing. And now I, I just want to, I feel like I can ask you this because you are a friend of NextGen. What would you say to people 
like me and others who are, you know, this has been going on for a while now and it feels tiring. It feels relentless and looking forward, it's, it's hard to be as optimistic as perhaps even I would normally be. What would you say to people like me? So I had a young GP ring me the other day who uh, was worried about kind of what it would be like in the future. And um, one of the things I think has happened is that in the same way that we've seen a reset of how we do consultations, I think we've seen a reset of patient expectations. And I, I, I personally, it's, it's my anecdote, but I've noticed people be um, just grateful having a consultation with a GP, whether that's on video or phone or whatever. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that gives you the joy and the energy back in your job, the stuff that's really rewarding. So I would say that I think, you know, the, that, that will always come and go in seasons, but it feels like now is actually quite a good season. Where, you know, you can, you can be a great GP for people and people are thankful. Being a GP is one of the most privileged jobs ever you know you get to sit in a consultation room and you get to see people who um, either by video by phone or whatever format using people get to bring their concerns to you and you get to deal with that and that's an amazing privilege and that feels like that that's probably um, more satisfactory now than it has been in in a recent season so that's good um, I do think that there's also an element of um, thinking about what the future might be. You know, I love the quote from Michelangelo. Um, someone said to him, you know, when he carved the statue of David, um, you know, how did you do that? You know, did you, you know, as a piece of marble, did you, you know, how did you work out what was going on? And he said, well, you know, he knew that David was inside the statue and he just had to get rid of all the stuff that wasn't David from that piece of marble. And actually, that that's really helpful for me in a way because it's like actually you can you can see this guy who's um, a sculptor who's highly creative, and he's not thinking oh, I'm going to get it wrong. He's just trying to find David in the statue in the block of marble that he's using. Um, and actually, you know, you can look at some things and they look like a bit of a block of marble. They don't look as they should do. But the question is, can you start to have vision to see those things differently so that you can say, actually, I could see that block of marble looking just a bit different to how it looks. I could see how I do consultations looking a bit different. I could see lots and lots of different things. And then what have I got to get rid of to produce that beautiful statue out of it to, to make that creation come to life? And so it feels like, again, we're in a season where that, that's possible, um, where we can do that, where, you know, we're asking some big questions about how we just do routine consultations, how we change things. And, um, you know, my my WhatsApp is um, full of groups of people that are going, you know, can we, do, can we do things this way? Can we do that? You know, can we change things? And actually, it feels like people are beginning to, to dream again. Um, and to um, think differently again, which is, again, it's part of the leadership challenge, isn't it? It's part of vision. So, this, you know, I think there's probably, we're getting to a season with patients that want to be seen and possibility to change things so that we can create the statues that we want to create. And that, that again, that's exciting, isn't it? That's a really, that's a really great place to be. So, yeah, I think that's how we need to think about things moving forward. So, Nick, before we end, we ask everyone three questions. Okay. So the first question is, can you tell me about a leader that you admire and why? So I'd, um, 
I've had the privilege of uh, meeting and having several chats and getting to know on a small scene um, Professor Sibiris Keogh. I think he's an amazing man. I think he, you know, many of the things that I've talked about, I've seen him, uh, I've seen him do. I've seen he kind of embodies leadership in many ways, and um, he's always a person that's wanted to um, invest in the future of healthcare and the future of um, you know the leaders of the future. And so watching him do that and learning from that has been just such a privilege. Yeah, that's Bruce in a nutshell. And I'm so glad we got to record that podcast episode with him so we could capture his stories and advice in one place. So Nick, the next question is, can you tell me about a resource that you'd recommend for people to listen to? So, um, yeah, I think I've I've really enjoyed um, Simon Sinek's produced some podcasts. He's got a new series of podcasts and he's got some amazing people that he's interviewed, including this week. He's just released one with Stanley McChrystal, who did Team of Teams. And just some of those talks, I think, are really interesting. Thank you. And I think especially helpful at at this time, because I don't think people have Maybe they don't quite have the energy at the end of the day to read. So podcast is really helpful. Um, And the final question is three bits of advice that you want to leave people with. My first would be that investing in others is, has always been such a privilege. And if you get a chance to do that, then do it. I think you've learned, we all knew that, you know, when, when we went through medical school, that you ended up with people in the years below you asking you things. And actually that process of conveying information that you'd learned was, I've always found that such a privilege. So uh, A, invest in others. B, off the back of investing in others, the bizarreness is that you grow. You know, there's nothing like having to find, you know, to teach something that you think you know well to realise that you don't know it at all. <laughs> and so, so, so invest in others because actually the benefit of doing that for you is amazing. Um, thirdly, I've, I've been really really struck by several people talking about how you keep joy in the current situation and how you can try and do that and I found myself laughing at myself a whole lot more as a consequence of that and realizing that some of the things I just do are so silly but enjoying that and so finding joy in the jobs that you do make sure that you can do anything to hold on to joy I think it gets robbed very easily so um yeah try and keep the joy in the things that you're doing so nick thank you so much for that as ever i just love chatting to you i must confess i didn't really go into this podcast expecting to hear so much new stuff and yet i haven't heard any of that before so no one else probably will have either so thank you for taking the time to think about what you wanted to say and just giving a message of hope which i think is just needed so much right now Thanks, Lish. It's been really, really fun. I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. So that was episode eight with Professor Nick Harding. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a bit of a different one. We explored his thoughts about life and lockdown and leadership roles at an early stage. I'd love to know what you thought. So send us an email at nextgenerationgp at gmail.com. Tweet us at nextgp. And don't forget, if you want to be the first to hear about NextGen webinars and events, you can sign up to our monthly bulletin, which is bit.ly forward slash NGGP bulletin. Have a good few weeks. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon for episode nine.